Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So uh, tonight I'm going to give you the good news that um, what we're doing here uh, is a path that leads to happiness, real happiness. Guy uh, spoke about metta a few nights ago and uh, tonight I'm going to be talking about joy. And we'll cover the other uh, Brahma Viharas uh, before the month is over. Um, But since it was kind of an invitation the other night from from Bonnie, uh, I thought this would be the right time to do it. There's a lot of talk about suffering in these teachings, have you noticed? <clears throat> There's the Four Noble Truths. There is suffering. There's a cause of suffering. There's an end to suffering. And there's a path leading to the end to suffering. Uh, and one can forget that um, this is not just about suffering and dealing with suffering, but this is about opening to happiness. As Bonnie mentioned the other night, uh, the Buddha was called the happy one. Um, And it's not uncommon for there to be um, a real um, seriousness about about practice and uh, for people to forget that this is about true well-being, happiness, and joy. And that happened to me as well, which is why I, I became interested in joy and just what the Buddha did have to say about, about that and real happiness. When I first got into practice, um, as perhaps many of you experienced, it was like coming home. It was so incredibly, um, just so filled with gratitude. I had found what I was looking for. Uh, and I had what was, uh, what's called a long honeymoon period where I would just tell everyone, you just have to be mindful. You just have to be mindful. My friends kind of took their distance from me uh, in those early days, you know, okay. But I was just ready to turn the world on to mindfulness. And um, during that honeymoon period, which lasted for quite a number of years, I did did lots and lots of retreats like you're doing now, and many of you are in that process where you have your external life, but an internal life process where you are going from one retreat to another because it's so compelling and you're learning so much. And uh, that was very much like it was for me. Um, But at some point, I became very serious about my practice. Dead serious about my practice. Emphasis on the dead part. And somehow I took some teachings to, um, to um, misunderstand what I look back and, and see now is a misunderstanding that, um, that this is about getting out of here as fast as you can and um, on one one long retreat each night, the, the, the master, uh, Burmese master would say, may you speedily 
escape from the woes of this world and realize the bliss of Nibbana. And you hear that night after night and uh, something got, got in there that thought, oh, it's not okay to love life and to um, feel the goodness in life. Not conceptually, but more internally on, a, on an un, unconscious uh, level. And uh, I, I'm not alone. And I had this um, long period where I did become real serious about my practice and, uh, and lost my joy. This is, um, this is from Ajahn Sumedho. I quoted him before. He was the one who did the, the three-hour Dharma talks and uh, the old ladies stayed there. This is what he says about this mm, possible blind alley. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. (laughs) Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) This has a certain value on one level, but it's not a fixed position to take. It's not that we should just feel compelled to reject beauty and dwell on its impermanence and on how it changes to being not so beautiful and then downright repulsive. That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta, but it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. People who can't see the beauty of the good or the true are really bitter and mean. They live in an ugly realm where there's no rejoicing in beauty and goodness and truth. But once you have true insight, then you find you enjoy and delight in the beauty and the goodness of things. Because truth, beauty, and goodness delight us. In them, we find joy. This is from the Buddha. One translation, Thomas Byram's translation in the Dhammapada. Live in joy in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. And there are some teachings that one could easily um, take to mean that um, uh, that one um, should that it's not okay to um, to see the good and the true and the beauty of of things. And I wanted to share with you um, two that are very important and very profound. Um, unfoldings in practice, but that can easily lead us to think that um, it's not okay to delight in the good. One teaching is, uh, it's a word that's been used, um, I heard it in a a talk or two, but I don't think it's been defined. Samvega, has it been defined here? Samvega, S-A-M-V-E-G-A. And this is uh, a definition of samvega. Uh, this is uh, Tanasara Bhikkhu's translation. Samvega, the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that comes with realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let oneself live so blindly and an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. So you can get a sense of why somebody might say, whoa, let's get out of here as quick as possible. But Samvega is actually a very important and profound place to, um, to touch on and practice if you understand 
And the, the, the key words in that definition, realizing the futility and meaninglessness of life as it's normally lived, as it's normally lived, where we get the message that more is better and sooner is best and you get the most you can next to the, the, the guy, your neighbor, uh, and you, the, the one who has the most toys wins. Um, that is a very futile mm, existence that lacks true depth and meaning. So when you touch that place sometimes in practice where you see, oh, this isn't really gonna do it for me. That's not really gonna do it for me. Oh, the next experience, they come and they go. Oh, the next object, the next thing, they come and they go. Then you start looking for something more profound and deep. But you can see how one can get the idea, oh, life is meaningless. Here's another also very important um, concept and place in practice that one opens up to. I, again, I think that's, it's been mentioned here, but I don't know about defined. Nibida, has, has Nibida been spoken? No, Nibida, N-I-B-B-I-D-A, Nibida, which has a few different translations depending upon what source you're reading. One is, um, one should abide in utter disgust for the aggregates. Okay, that's Woodward's translation. Nibida translated as utter disgust for the aggregates. And the, the aggregates, I think, been mentioned here, the five aggregates is a way to describe this mind-body process form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. That's another way of saying this body and mind. So one should abide in utter disgust for the aggregates. This set of aggregates and the ones around you. <clears throat> and another translation, um, one should, this is uh, yeah, another translation. One should dwell engrossed in revulsion towards the aggregates, okay? So utter disgust, revulsion, as you're trying to relate to this mind and body. You know, most people have a hard enough time looking in the mirror and not, you know, and, and feeling okay. But when you're told utter disgust, you know, <laughs> go for revulsion, you know. Give me a break, you know. But nibbida actually is a very important concept. And there's a beautiful essay by uh, Andy Olensky, um, who's a, a wonderful Buddhist scholar in, in our community, uh, on nibbida, and uh, where he points to the, the real translation, the accurate translation, one should develop disenchantment with regard to the aggregates. Disenchantment. So what does that mean, disenchantment? Not being enchanted. That is breaking the spell of enchantment that we often have to this or other bodies and minds. <gasps> wow, look at that package, you know. <laughs> That's really what's going on. <laughs> and we become under the spell of a form or of an expression of, that, of, of life in that way. And the Buddha says, see through it. This is just a pattern of life expressing itself as this being. And if you develop a disenchantment, not completely under the spell of this body or mind or that, or, or that one, uh, then you have that, dis, you, it leads to a dispassion and to equanimity and to the highest states of freedom. But you, again, you can see how one can distort that 
teaching and to think it's not okay to let myself be moved by beauty or goodness or the preciousness of this life. The Buddha was called the happy one and he talked about lots of different uh, expressions of happiness and joy. There's um, a number of words, PT, and uh, probably Sally talked about it yesterday in, in the uh, concentration, PT, rapture or bliss. There's sukha, happiness. There's pamoja, gladness. There is um, upeka, equanimity. Lots of different states of well-being that the Buddha talks about and says it's good to cultivate these states, these healthy, wholesome states. And so when, I'm, when I say joy, I'm talking about the whole range of well-being and happiness. So don't let the word trip you up. You know, sometimes people think, you know, they hear, oh, you teach a course awakening joy. I'll just take not being miserable, thank you. You know, that's, that's good enough for me. Uh, but you don't have to go through, you know, skipping through a field of daisies. It's just all the, the qualities, the states of well-being that are spoken of so beautifully in the teachings. Mm. The Dalai Lama starts out his book, The Art of Happiness, a very beautiful book, with this line. He says, the purpose of life is to be happy. The purpose of life is to be happy. Just let that line land on you, in you. The purpose of life is to be happy. What does that mean? He says, go for true happiness because if you do, then you're not obscuring all the beautiful qualities that you've been gifted with. And when there's true happiness, not the limited false happiness that we're usually uh, seduced by, then that all those beautiful qualities shine through you and not only feel good for you, but for everybody you meet. So I had this long uh, honeymoon period and then I had a, a period where I did lose my joy. Uh, And actually, one of the the things that that broke the spell um, that maybe then look again to to the teachings was being with a a wonderful Advaita teacher in India. Some of you might have heard of him uh, named uh, Punjaji, H.W.L. Punja, who was not a, a, a Buddhist, but however he was... He loved the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings. Uh, he was a, a, um, a Dharma heir of Ramana Maharshi. And I spent time with him, really a, quite an amazing presence. And, uh, um, and fortunately, I was there before, towards the end of his life, hordes came when he was somehow discovered. But I was there still when it was a a smaller group and I asked him lots and lots of questions and he was so patient. He had this just radiant energy and he could just beam you with love as well as his wisdom. And and each time I'd ask him a question, is that all your questions? And I said, well, I have one more. Give me your questions, give me your questions. And finally, after about three weeks, he said, no more questions? And I said, well, I have one last question. Punjaji, give me your question. He said, I said, um, he talked a lot about emptiness, right? The word he used continuously. And I said, you know, you talk a lot about emptiness and Buddhist teachers and students, you know, talk a lot about emptiness, but when, when Buddhists talk about emptiness and, and Dharma teachers talk about emptiness, there's something very profound and solemn and serious about it. 
you talk about emptiness and you're laughing and you're just uh, having a great time. Why is your emptiness so much more fun than, than ours? <laughs> that was what I asked him. <clears throat> and he said, um, he said something like this uh, uh, that came down to, he said, you know, if, uh, if one uh, discovers emptiness through, um, through silent meditation, and that uh, is the model, that's the doorway, that's the highest form of understanding the deepest truths, um, it can easily be distorted in thinking that the silence is where the emptiness is to be found and that the world of appearances and form are less than the silent discovery of emptiness. He said, but really, but my emptiness, my emptiness rejects nothing. <laughs> my emptiness has love, has confusion, has sorrow, has joy, has every, nothing is rejected from my emptiness. And then he started laughing. <laughs> I said, oh, of course. I mean, what he was saying was not a completely new concept to me. I heard and said many times, uh, samsara and nirvana are, are, this, are one. But there was some attachment to the stillness and the silence and the solemnity uh, and the profound understanding of emptiness that somehow rejected the, the delight and the aliveness that was so palpable and moving for me and others who studied with him. And it kind of, it reminded me of this place of delight that's been a one part of my being throughout my whole life, but that I had somehow um, abandoned. And fortunately, when that kind of woke me up, instead of turning away from Buddha Dharma, it made me, um, especially since I was teaching it a lot, um, it, it made me really curious and inquisitive and wanting to see, well, what did the Buddha actually say about happiness and joy? And as I looked, I discovered many beautiful, profound teachings that weren't only about the quiet of, of deep meditation, but were um, pointers to bringing this about in one's meditation practice and in one's daily life practice. And that's when I started to, uh, to write about and, and teach this, this course, Awakening Joy. So I wanted to uh, share with you uh, some basic principles that I've found very helpful and, and how to apply them in your practice. First of all, some understanding that our natural state is one of well-being. That uh, sometimes think, gosh, you know, I... Maybe I never had joy, or maybe I had it and I lost it, and where can I find it? But it's right inside of us. This is what the Buddha said with all the Brahma Viharas, that they are the natural byproduct, they are the natural expression. I think I mentioned Ajahn Sumedha's phrase, the shining through of the divine. They're what naturally comes out of us when the mind isn't caught in contraction or confusion. I wanted to show you, just to remind you who you are. Uh, this is a picture of uh, Chloe Thomas, who was uh, uh, born in, who's in Melbourne, Australia. This is a picture, she was born eight weeks premature. And this picture was not yet when she was nine months after conception. But this is Chloe. 
Do you remember? <laughs> this is who you really are. This is your natural state. And if a, a baby, we know this, if a baby is fed and diapered and receives just, just even a, a bit of love, genuine love, what does a baby do? They squeal with delight. Wow, isn't life wonderful? That's one reason why we like being around babies. Um, and you might think, yeah, well, that was a long time ago. I don't know about now. But actually, they, when you take a, an adult and put an adult in an fMRI machine, if that adult is uh, pain-free and stress-free and knows a little bit about uh, not clouding the mind with confusion um, and experiences just a general well-being. What they exhibit in the MRI mach fMRI machine, they are conscious, calm, creative, caring, and content. That's who we are when we're not lost in confusion. So it's one thing to just keep in mind what we're doing here, just like when we take refuge in the Buddha, in the Buddha inside, we're taking refuge in that place, that seed of awakening, of, of true uh, connection with life when we're not in the way. So um, this is good to understand. You don't have to go looking for it out there. It's right in here. Okay, so want to, um, to share some principles that I found helpful. First principle, and Bonnie talked about it in, in, uh, in an earlier talk, has to do with wise effort, um, which has four aspects, two having to do with unwholesome states, akusala, and two having to do with wholesome states, kusala. And unwholesome states are states of suffering and that lead to more suffering. Wholesome states are states of well-being that lead to more well-being and happiness. So the two with akusala, guarding against unwholesome states, when unwholesome states have arisen to learn how to overcome them. And we've been spending a lot of time, you know, you've been learning tools when you get confused or when you get into self-judgment or when you are lost in, in wanting, how to work with them and overcome them. And then the two having to do with wholesome, as she mentioned, one is to cultivate wholesome states like mindfulness is a very wholesome state, the most profound wholesome state of all. And uh, doing the Brahma Viharas each afternoon, cultivating that open-heartedness or generosity is, a, is another wholesome state. Lots of wholesome states. And then the fourth wise effort, which is the one that I particularly have found helpful to focus on, when a wholesome state has arisen, the Buddha recommends maintaining and increasing that wholesome state. He says this is a good thing to do, to maintain a wholesome state and increase it if possible. Now here's the tricky part, because when there's a pleasant or wholesome state here, of course we want to increase it, but we usually go about it by saying, how can I make this bigger? I want more. Or how can I keep it here so it doesn't go away and lasts? And as soon as you have an agenda for that wholesome state to not go away and you grasp after it, it's just turned into an unwholesome state. Tricky, isn't it? So it's not by trying to hold on or getting attached to the wholesome state that will work against you. But he does say, 
learn ways to maintain and increase that wholesome state, this is a good thing. Okay, so that's the first principle, to develop wholesome states and that to realize it's good to maintain and increase them. How to do this? The second principle or teaching, he says that with a wholesome state, there is a feeling of uplift or gladness that's associated with it. And he says that feeling of gladness, this is in uh, Majima Nikaya number 99, if you want to look it up. That feeling of gladness um, connected with what is wholesome, I call an equipment of mind to overcome all ill will and hostility. And that gladness connected with the wholesome, um, one gains uh, delight in the meaning, one gains inspiration in the Dhamma, one gladdens, it gladdens the heart. He says, there is this gladness connected with what's wholesome. It's good to tune into it. And the example he gives in this particular sutta, he says, supposing you're in the middle of a generous act. And he says, um, while in the middle of a generous act, one can think to oneself, one should think to oneself, he recommends saying to oneself, oh, I'm being generous now. This is the Buddha saying, oh, I'm being generous now. And tune into the gladness connected with that. Now he's not saying, hey, check it out. (laughs) Everybody see how generous I am? I'm a pretty generous guy. No, 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 no. All that does is reify the sense of self. Aren't I wonderful? But he says, when you're feeling that generosity, just notice how good it feels for generosity to move through you without taking ownership of it, but just let it delight you. This is what we do in the metta practice when you're, well, you're wishing somebody well and at some time you actually get into the feeling, oh, it feels so good to just wish someone well. Tuning in to the gladness connected with what is wholesome. This is a very good thing. So what does that mean? Basically, whenever you're having a wholesome moment, whether it's loving kindness, like we're doing in the, formally in the metta meditation, or uh, a spirit of um, gratitude, or generosity, or whatever the wholesome state, and I'm sure you've touched many of them, whenever you're having that wholesome state, don't miss it. Notice it. Let it be an object of your meditation. How do you do that? By turning your mindfulness right on the experience. How does this feel? It's one thing to know, hmm, feeling pretty good right now. It's a whole other level to know, oh, this is what it feels like to feel good. Hmm, yeah. As an example, we'll just do, spend a moment. Think of something that brings you joy, a wholesome kind of joy. You know, not your gold jewelry or something out there. What, maybe what activity, what experience, what, what brings you a wholesome kind of a joy? And as you're remembering being in the middle of that, just remember what it feels like to be in that activity or that situation. 
And notice what it feels like inside. Just notice the landscape of it. Don't have to go for a gusher now, just to notice that, that sweet sense of well-being. Just tune into the whole experience, relax into it, yeah. Okay, or you can open your eyes. And uh, mm, any uh, comments, what do you notice inside? How did that gladness feel? There's no one right answer. It can feel many different ways. Anyone? Warmth, Warmth. okay. What else? Spacious, yes. Bright. What? What? Bright. Bright, good. What else? Floating. Say again, what was it? Floating? Yeah, floating. floating, floating up. Anything else? Authentic. Authentic, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brought a smile to my face. Brought a smile to your face, yeah. Beautiful. All of these wholesome states are expansive. They're light, they open our hearts, they open our minds, they create enough space so that we can see uh, we can get delighted and see things clearly. Yeah. Tune in to those moments. Rick Hansen, who probably many of you know, he's, he comes here and teaches uh, at Spirit Rock and he comes regularly to the, the Joy Course. Uh, he's a neuroscience expert if you haven't read his books, Buddha's Brain and, uh, and others. He says to... Um, to notice when you're in the middle of that wholesome state, what he calls taking in the good, to bring your attention to it. He recommends, he's changed. He used to say 30 seconds. Now he's down to about 15 seconds uh, because not everybody has 30 seconds to give to that. uh. He says, if you do that six times in a day, here's his little formula, over a two-week period, you will notice a shift in your level of well-being, both because you're deepening the neural pathways and really letting it um, register in your consciousness, and you're starting to get into the habit of taking in the good. So six times a day, 15 seconds, I know that's like, what is that, 90 seconds of well-being if you can handle it, right? (laughs) Over the course of six uh, of two weeks. Well, here, what else do you have to do, right? (laughs) Oh, I've got better things to do than to feel well-being. Sorry, you know. I'm hanging out with Duca this week, you know. (laughs) It's not all one or the other. And I'm not saying to, to cover up or deny the dukkha, it's very important, as I hope I'll get to it in a moment, to open up to dukkha. That is one of the paths to well-being. But to not miss those beautiful states, like Ajahn Sumedho said, those who can't see them uh, are missing out on the beauty and the goodness of things. And this is the Buddha saying, yeah, really let yourself Maintain and increase that state just by paying attention to it, just by giving it your presence, your kind, loving, interested presence. So that's the second. One is to to cultivate and maintain and increase wholesome states. Two, to tune into the gladness associated with them. And the third Dharma principle that the Buddha talks about. This is in uh, Majjhima Nikaya number 19, where he says, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of their mind. Can you argue with that? Whatever you frequently think and ponder upon will become the inclination of your mind. Modern neuroscience has an axiom that points to this. It says, neurons that fire together, wire together. That's what we're doing. We're we're rewiring our brain towards more well-being. So he says, if you practice 
a certain way of being that that becomes more and more who you are or where you live from. Just why we're practicing mindfulness because mindfulness itself has the unique property of all the wholesome states and maybe you've gone through this, the, the different mental factors been, been talked about here, this posit- wholesome mental factors and unwholesome, that mindfulness of all the factors is the one unique, has the one unique property of cultivating all the wholesome factors and weakening all the unwholesome factors. Pretty cool, isn't it? That's why the Buddha said, there is one most direct way to overcome sorrow, lamentation, and grief, pain, and anxiety, and realize the highest happiness. And that is the cultivation, the establishment of mindfulness because it develops all those wholesome states and weakens all the unwholesome ones, like those factors of awakening that Bonnie spoke of the other night. So to practice mindfulness, you become more mindful. Practice loving kindness, you become more kind. Practicing generosity, you become more generous. Practicing anger, you become more angry. Practicing Um, judgment, you become more judging, unless you can break the habit. And that's where the Dharma is such an incredible gift. So we are simply creatures of habit. And when we can see this, we start to realize we have a choice. And also in modern neuroscience, this is corroborated not just by that axiom, but by the principle of um, confirmation bias, that we will find what we look for because our brains selectively look for what corroborates our belief systems. So if you're looking for how everybody around is gonna disappoint you, you'll probably find a lot of evidence, but you'll miss the times that they don't. And if you're looking for how um, life is, there's so much suffering in life and what's the point? You will only notice the suffering and not notice the goodness and the beauty. If you are looking for how people really want to open their hearts in love, and that if we feel safe enough, that's what we want to come out of us. We want to love and be loved. If you're looking for that, that's what you'll actually draw out. And if you're, and you won't see, you, you will more likely notice that. You'll still, still see plenty of suffering because you can't avoid that. And I'm not suggesting you put your head in the sand but it's harder to notice the good. We are wired up to look for what's wrong. Again, there's this neuroscience has shown there's this almond-shaped cluster of neurons in our brain called the amygdala that scans the horizon for what can go wrong. And it's a good thing up to a point because, you know, you don't want to be naive and just, you know, walk into a bus or uh, just not see uh, and be so trusting that everything uh, that you're in la la land. But we tend to see what can go wrong and often miss what's right. As Rick says, uh, he puts it this way, the brain is uh, Teflon for positive experiences and Velcro for negative experiences. I read this study that said, one negative encounter, somebody snaps at you. For most people, it takes about seven positive encounters before you kind of are coming back and chill. You know, seven people saying, oh, hi, nice to see you. you know, then after a while, you start to come back. So to really respect that uh, it takes some practice to look for the good. But the more you practice, and we can do it right here in our... Uh, Dharma practice, the more you start to notice it. If you have tended to see what's wrong, this 
these last days or weeks or years, you know, or decades, you know, you might just as a little game start looking for what's right. Thich Nhat Hanh has that as a main instruction. He says, uh, instead of looking for what's wrong, start looking for what's not wrong. And he gives the example, oh, I had a toothache last week. I don't have a toothache right now. How wonderful. We kind of forget once the toothache is gone, we go to the dentist. Oh yeah, okay, now what's the next thing I got to look out for? Oh, I don't have a toothache right now. How terrific. So, these are the, the basic principles that you can use in your practice. That is noticing wholesome states, tuning into the gladness connected with them, and realizing that over time you are practicing inclining your mind towards greater well-being. Okay, so now how to cultivate this in a, mm, uh, in a more um, systematic way. And I'll just share with you uh, some, of the, some of the wholesome states that I've found uh, really helpful to keep in mind. You're cultivating them anyway, so it's not like you've got to remember all of this. But uh, what I did in, in, uh, in writing about it and exploring it is looking at 10 different wholesome states that the Buddha said are very, very um, conducive to well-being and to pay attention to them when they're here. So the first of these, I just got a cramp, okay. So the first of these is intention. The intention to let yourself open up to well-being and happiness. And something in you did bring you here that indicates that you do want happiness, but sometimes it's hard to let ourselves really open up to happiness. But you all have that quality. We all, anybody here that doesn't want to be happy, and if you're holding back from raising your hand, saying, yeah, I like being grumpy. That's just your way of being happy. <laughs> Whatever turns you on, you know. But if you take a look, you'll see that everything that you do is motivated because in one way or another, you sense that it will lessen the pain or the unpleasant feeling and it will increase the pleasant feeling. So that's a good thing, but often we get misguided in thinking what's going to really bring us happiness. Very misguided. You know, as the Buddha said, you know, everybody around uh, wants to be happy and they're doing exactly the things that are leading to more suffering. That's what motivated him to, to teach when he saw that others could see what he saw. But to realize that there's something in you that is genuinely rooting for your happiness and well-being. It's there. You don't have to manufacture it. Isn't that good to know? There's something in you that truly wants to be happy and so fortunate that you found the Dharma because there's something in you also that senses that this can lead to it. Well, to front and center, get in touch with the fact, I really do want to be happy. You say it every time you do the metta, may I be happy. Have you noticed that phrase? May I be happy. May I really be happy. And it, there's things that get in the way. I know it's hard. But to really get in touch with that very wholesome and pure motivation that wants that for yourself. And no matter what has been in your life or what your history has been, once you get in touch with that clear motivation and connect with it, miracles can happen because intention is the start of all karma. I want to, uh, I'll read to you one, one story, one anecdote 
from a book that some of you have heard me talk about that I, I recommend uh, called How We Choose to Be Happy. And this is a book written by uh, two guys, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks, who, um, uh, who have become friends. Uh, they, they live right here in the Bay Area. And they did a three-year um, study um, finding as many certifiably happy people as they could find. And they, f- they came across about 320 really happy people. And then they asked each one, why are you so happy? What's your secret of happiness? And they distilled their responses into uh, nine different common denominators. So how we choose to be happy, the nine choices of extremely happy people, I think something like that. And you might think, oh yeah, well those are people who just kind of had it made, so they're not so. And this is Adele's story. She says, in one horrible 24 month period, my life evaporated. My house, uh, I lost everything. My house burned down to the ground. It was the Oakland fire, 1991. Leaving me with nothing, no clothes, furniture, photos, no material reminder of my previous life. During that time, both of my parents died unexpectedly. My husband left me for a younger woman. At the same time, my restaurant went bankrupt. My best friend moved to Seattle. Even the dog died. I had nothing. I was so filled with grief, I thought maybe God was somehow preparing me to die. Everything was gone. Maybe this was some monumental lesson in letting go and that I should let my life go too. But as my initial shock began to clear, a feeling that I wanted to live outweighed all of my thoughts about death. I began to see there was hope among the ashes. There was one big opportunity. I had a clean slate. As long as I had to start over and create a whole new life, I was going to create a happy one. I wanted to feel whole. I was sure that I wanted to embrace everything in life, the good and the bad. I wanted a feeling of contentment and to feel rested and gentle. I wanted to feel unafraid, to feel I could handle anything that came my way. And I wanted to feel this way for the rest of my life. In spite of my grief, I could see that this all added up to happiness for a lifetime. And it follows her. It wasn't like all of a sudden she turned on a switch and everything was okay. It took her a few years to work through her grief, but she was committed to going for more happiness. And now she is this bright light. Rick and Greg, who I know, say you walk into a room and she just lights it up because she had an intention to change. So whatever your history, whatever your background, sometimes you're more motivated to change than if you had it easy. So having the intention to put well-being and happiness right in front and center in your heart, and particularly if that intention can benefit others, it's that much more inspiring. There is mindfulness, as I said, the, the, the second in this sequel, because mindfulness is the basic tool of a, of a joyful life, as I, as I mentioned. There is um, opening up to the difficult. This is a very key part of well-being. That's why the Buddha started out with saying, I teach about suffering and the end of suffering because if you're not afraid to open to suffering, then you, are, you become fearless and you learn how to open to the whole show. And that's what we're learning to do here. As one teaching, and there might be further uh, elucidation on this, as one teaching goes, it's called Transcendental Dependent Arising. The Buddha starts out saying, suffering 
can lead to faith. Faith can lead to gladness, can lead to joy, happiness and contentment, peace, and all the way to the highest stages of freedom. Suffering can lead to faith, which can lead to gladness. Let me ask, how many people have been motivated by suffering to find answers in their life that give some meaning? That's how it works. So not to think, oh, I'm suffering now, I can't, I, I can't awaken joy. No, open up to it a little at a time with a very compassionate heart and that will start to um, help you open up to every moment. Then you see every moment counts. So there's other states, I'll, I'll just end with one more that we can practice a bit but there's, I'll just share, besides uh, the ones I've mentioned, uh, sila is a cause for great happiness and well-being. It's the foundation of well-being. And every time you choose the high road, notice, oh, this is, uh, this is wisdom. I'm going for true well-being. Loving oneself, metaphor oneself, a great source of of joy, to notice that and cultivate it. Connecting with others, feeling the compassionate heart, letting go, all of those things are sources of great well-being and any wholesome state that you're in to really tune into it. And the one that I'll, I'll just uh, end with and we can do a little practice on is gratitude. A very direct um, doorway to true well-being and joy. Because gratitude, we are saying yes to life. We're opening, it's a direct expansion of the heart. As um, one Tibetan teacher says, gratitude is like putting out your satellite dish. Instead of, mm, this is wrong and that's wrong, Thank you, and then you can receive the blessings of the lineage, the blessings of, of life. So to feel gratitude and then to notice it when it's here, just as a little exercise, um, close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind somebody or some situation in your life that you're grateful for or grateful to. And you might have an image of maybe that person or that being or that situation. And now just give a simple silent thank you from your heart. Thank you. And now let your awareness just relax in that feeling of gratitude. Thank you. You don't have to squeeze anything else out, just opening up to it. Maybe take a breath and bring to mind another blessing. There's so many. Could read the discord, maybe I'll read the discourse and blessings at the late night sit. So many blessings. And maybe an image and a simple thank you from your heart. Thank you to life or to that person. And just rest in it, relax in it. This is tuning into the gladness of that wholesome state. Okay, you can open your eyes. So I'll just leave you with one story if you could feel it you got it maybe got a sense of how to do this it doesn't yeah I don't have to take a whole long time just a few moments of oh yeah this is good the story some of you have heard that but I'll share it's the it's the best story in for me in in the book and in uh, teaching all of this uh, and it's a story that shows that people can change it's the story of my mom who um 
uh, passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 94. Um, and uh, my mom, she's a YouTube star, uh, if you want to see. How many people have seen the video of my mom? Oh, just Okay. If you go to Confessions of a Jewish Mother, how my son ruined my life. That, that, that's, that's the YouTube. It's like 408,000 views right now because she's very funny. So I was writing the, this, the book and I was visiting her down in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, my sister who lived, lives right near where she lived uh, was going away for a few weeks and I was going to spend a week while my sister was away. And then I had a pretty good very good relationship with my mom by that time. And uh, I was writing the chapter on gratitude and I had all of this research that showed all the benefits of gratitude. Improves your immune system and it's uh, your relationships and you take better care of yourself and on and on. I had a whole you know booklet full of research and I was sharing it with her. And I said, what do you think, mom? And my mom, as she says in the, in the YouTube video, as a Jewish mother, has certain genes of, they're called, it's called kvetching in Yiddish, which means you're a complainer. She's always complained about most everything, uh, but always with a great sense of humor, or, not, or most of the time with a great sense of humor. And I said, what do you think, mom? She said, that's very impressive. And I said, hey, wouldn't it be great to have a gratitude practice? And she rolled her eyes and said, James, I know my life is blessed. I do know it's blessed. But I've been seeing things in the negative, the, the glass half empty my whole life. I don't think I'm about to change at 89. That was how old she was when this happened. Uh, I said, well, fair enough. And then I said, I was just kind of curious. I said, let me ask you, if you could change, would you change? She said, yeah, if I could, I would, but don't hold your breath, right? And then I said, I don't know what came through me. I said, how about if we play a game? Every time you complain, I'll just remind you what you just said, that your life is blessed. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, suppose you say, oh, it's so cold here in Marina del Rey, Southern California, <laughs> you know. It's so cold today. And I say, and? And you say, and my life is very blessed. And she said, okay, let's do it. Because she had that kind of very playful spirit. We were playing Scrabble at the time while this is all going on great Scrabble player. And uh, she said, okay, let's do it. Well, we had the most amazing week as the complaints rolled off her tongue <laughs> one after another each time I'd catch it. You know, oh, this TV reception. And, oh yeah, and my life is very blessed. And we laughed the whole week. She started seeing how her mind was working. And when I went home, I called her up a lot those first couple of weeks. And a friend down there was in on the game and who played it with her. And little by little, it started to make an impact. My sister who came home, who has those same tendencies as my mom, her first comment was, what did you do to mom? <laughs> she wasn't particularly thrilled, but after a while, she kind of appreciated it. Anyway, that carried on for the last five years of her life. And I'll share with you <clears throat> the poem that I put in the book, which she wrote me seven months after this exercise, this game started. We would exchange poems for our birthdays uh, in my family. I always, always wrote a poem to each other. And uh, so she wrote this poem it was my birthday, and, uh, and she was losing her eyesight to macular degeneration at the time, because there's a reference to it. She says, 90 is just fine with me. I no longer rant and rave about where the world is heading and my exclusive job to save. I wallow in contentment and know that I am blessed. 
awakening to the joy of living at its best. I'm happier than I've ever been and truly mean each word. The thoughts that cause the worries now all seem so absurd. Though my eyesight has been dimmed, I see clearer than before. The glass is not half empty. It's overflowing to be sure. If my mom can change at 89, anyone can change. And this went on through the rest of her life, even up to her last, the end, when she had cancer at the, uh, the last year, and she fortunately wasn't in pain, so she was very grateful. But there she was towards the end, in bed, she couldn't get out of bed, her eyesight gone, she couldn't really read. She had to hear, have her hearing aids turned all the way up. So she couldn't really see, she couldn't really hear, she couldn't really move. And all she talked about was how blessed she was. And I went in, or that was one of the main things that she talked about. Uh, it wasn't only, but that was a big part of it. I went in a few weeks before she, uh, she passed and w- went in one morning, I was visiting her, and she looked deep in contemplation, and then she opened her eyes, you could see I was there, and I said, wow, mom, what was going through your mind? You look so deep in thought. And she said, actually, my mind was completely devoid of all thought, except thank you, God, thank you, God. I said, wow, mom, can I quote you on that? She said, will I get a commission? (laughs) And the very last words, I said, do you want want me to read anything at your memorial? She was ready to go. Do you want me to read anything at your your memorial service? And she said, sure. And she dictated to me. And she said, among other things, I don't know how I got to be so incredibly lucky. I had such an incredible run in my life. Life doesn't owe me anything. And then she said, I've been so amazingly blessed. And she said, blessed. It's such a small word and it means everything. So it's possible to incline your mind. Notice states of well-being, those moments of well-being. Really let them in as you're opening up to the whole show. This is what the Buddha suggested and this is the happiness and wholesomeness that you create actually or that you develop actually create the conditions for the deepest kind of happiness to arise so just sit for a moment here Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.